read 1 Corinthians chapter 11. First Corinthians chapter 11, and we read this chapter along with our treatment of Lord's Day 30, question and answers 81 and 82, that address the idea of the examination and the proper taking of the Lord's Supper. We hear the word of God, be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, dishonoreth her head, for that is even all one as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. And if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. Judge in yourselves, is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When ye come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, every one taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What? Have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, 
whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come, to get, come not together unto condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. In connection with this passage, as well as others to which we'll make reference, we have the teaching of Lord's Day 30, question and answers 81 and 82, found in the back of our Psalters on page 18. For whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? For those who are truly sorrowful for their sins, and yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ, and that their remaining infirmities are covered by his passion and death, and who also earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened and their lives more holy. But hypocrites and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts eat and drink judgment to themselves. Are they also to be admitted to this supper who by confession and life declare themselves unbelieving and ungodly? No, for by this the covenant of God would be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore it is the duty of the Christian church, according to the appointment of Christ and his apostles, to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven till they show amendment of life. Beloved, our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord's Day 30, question and answers 81 and 82, treat of the question of who should or should not come to the table of the Lord. Should the elders open up the table for everyone who wishes to attend when the Lord's Supper is administered? Or does the Lord require and desire that there be a sort of a fence around the table? And if so, who is to enforce that fence? Where should that fence be placed and why? Now, it's easy to ask questions, but God also provides us with answers in his word. God gives us the table out of love for his people. He knows the circumstances, the struggles, the challenges of life that we face. And in his grace, he sets before us the table to strengthen our faith. God demands that everyone who has faith in him come to the table. All who give evidence of a true and living faith must come. And so we look at the preparation that's necessary. The supper prepared for believers, noting, first of all, the believers, secondly, the examination, and finally, the supervision. Question answer 81 begins with a very important question. For whom is the Lord's Supper instituted. Now the viewpoint of the question is from the 
perspective of the individual believer, while then the next question takes up the same matter from the perception of the church. And so the first question here pertains, who should come and partake? Well, the next addresses the problem then of who should be admitted or turned away by the church. Now, both of these questions arise from this presumption. Not everybody is to be admitted to the table of the Lord. In that regard, immediately we understand the difference between baptism and the Lord's Supper. All of the babies of believers are to be presented for baptism. However, in the Lord's Supper, not all are to come to the table. Now, what is the difference? In baptism, the child is passive. In the Lord's Supper, those who partake are active. So that we are baptized, but we partake of the Lord's Supper. And so baptism signifies the incorporating into God's covenant and the glorious wonder of God's kingdom through the washing of our sins and through the blood of Jesus Christ. An act of God with regard to which we are entirely passive. God takes us and brings us into the glory of that covenant. And now the Lord's Supper requires of us that we be active. We come to the table. We take the bread and the wine. We eat the bread and we drink the wine. We must be able to discern the Lord's body. We read of that in verse 29. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. The Lord's Supper is for conscious believers, not for babies, not for small children. It requires a preparation and an examination that's necessary. And so the question is asked, who must come to the table of the Lord? That's the way Lord's Day 81 is translated by some versions of the catechism. Who must come? Notice the issue is not who is permitted to come, for whom is the sacrament administered and who must come to the sacrament? So that it's a matter of a demand. The question is worded this way because attendance at the supper is not optional for believers. It's not a matter of choice. It's a demand. And Paul here in 1 Corinthians 11 reminds the believers of the first words of Jesus. When Jesus instituted the supper, he said, take, eat. It was a command, a demand directed toward believers. Christ ordained the sacrament for the strengthening of faith, for those sinners for whom he laid down his life. And no believer then may choose of himself indefinitely to stay away from the table of the Lord. All are commanded to come. Now there's a reason why God commands believers to come. 1 Corinthians 10 addresses that in verse 17. For we, being many, are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. The purpose of the sacrament is to impress upon us believers the wonder of our union to Christ. We are joined to Jesus Christ. And as those united to Jesus Christ were to live out of him and were to show forth his praise, and as such, we eat the bread, we drink the wine to testify then of our union to our Savior, our oneness with Jesus Christ. God puts us face to face with this glorious truth 
My son's body was broken for you. His blood was poured out for you in order to pay for your sins. And God places us before that wonder because of the attacks that come at the de- from the devil. The devil, Satan, is attacking us. And he's attacking us in the storms of life. And as we struggle with doubts and with fears and with our own unworthiness, battling against sin, our Lord commands us, come to the table so that I can take away all your doubts, I can remove all your fears, and I can impress upon your sinful minds this wonder. You are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and you indeed belong to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And belonging to him, you share all the blessings and all the bounty of that glorious work that he performed on your behalf. Chief of which, the forgiveness of your sins, life everlasting. Beloved, we need that. And God in his grace and in his mercy provides us then with the table of the Lord. This command then, come, is really a privilege. Who would turn down an opportunity to have God remind me of his goodness and his mercy toward me and all the beautiful promises that are mine? God in his mercy showers these blessings upon us. And so believers must come to the table. Those believers show three things. First of all, they demonstrate that they're sorry for their sins. A sorrow that's genuine, that's real. Not a sorrow according to the world, but a sorrow that rises from an understanding of who God is, who I am, and the fact that my sins offend a holy and a righteous God. 2 Corinthians 7.10 talks about that distinction between a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow. The sorrow of the world is merely, I got caught. There's consequences, and therefore I'm sorry, but it's a selfish sorrow. Whereas the sorrow that is genuine, that is sincere, is a sorrow that stands before God and confesses, I have sinned against God. Are we truly sorry for our sins? Is it a sorrow that is merely because of the effects that, that sin had on me or because of the effects that sin had on others and the effect that that sin had on God and a sorrow because of the fact that that sin brought shame. It brought grief to the cause of Christ, which I am called to represent. That genuine sorrow, God works in the hearts of his children. But secondly, a sincere believer not only knows sorrow for sin, knows the wonder of forgiveness. Jehovah God has given to me a Savior. And through the wonder of his perfect work on Calvary, I confess my sins are covered. And I trust my sins have been forgiven me by God for the sake of Jesus Christ. The sinner who is sorrowful for his sins knows his need for forgiveness. And he confesses this wonder of God's grace, crying out not only out of habit, but out of a genuine desire for the mercy and the goodness of God. That God's mercy and that God's goodness follow me all the days of my life. I cannot live apart from it. And so we look to Christ and we plead forgiveness on his account. No new sacrifice is necessary. I can't bring anything, but he did it for me. And in him, I rejoice. 
But finally, the sincere believer then knows the horror of his sin, knows the deliverance that's in Christ Jesus, and desires to have his or her faith strengthened and his life more holy. The one who's truly sorrowful for his sins, who's clinging to Christ for the wonder of salvation, is one who desires to be pleasing before God, not only legally, but also morally. He knows the wonder of his justification. God has declared him righteous, but his desire now by his walk and his life is to do that which is right, that which is pleasing in the eyes of God. That's a central part of the Christian life. That's the confession of the psalmist throughout Psalm 119, delighting in God's law, delighting in God's commandments, desiring that his walk and his conduct be upright and be that which is not characterized by bitterness, not characterized by hatred toward God or the neighbor, but characterized by that love toward God and toward the neighbor. Sincere believers know that their faith is weak at times. They desire that faith strengthened. And they receive from the sacrament the wonder that Jehovah God is at work by His Spirit and that Jehovah God is working in order to increase that sensitivity and that devotion to Him. Hypocrites and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts, eat and drink judgment to themselves. The Catechism makes clear the Lord's Supper is not open to hypocrites. Hypocrites will partake. And there's not much that the church can do with regard to hypocrites because by nature of a hypocrite, a hypocrite is someone that is not able to be exposed. They know what to say. They know the things to do. And therefore, the church then has really no recourse. But they know within them that they're hypocrites. They do not love God with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength. They're merely putting on an outward show for whatever motivation that might be. As long as a person remains a hypocrite, we can't detect him. We can't keep that one from the table of the Lord. And so the admonition is directed toward that one. Take off your mask. You know who you are. Hiding behind that mask, knowing the right things to speak, the actions that are necessary. But do you love the truth? Do you love Jesus Christ? Are you living unto him? The word of God, through the preaching must expose that hypocrisy, must harden the hearts of those who are contrary to God's will. And so that instead of comforting, that word has an impact and it provokes and exposes the mask and that person eventually is put out then of the church of Jesus Christ by their conscience. Now when a hypocrite eats and drinks the table of the Lord, he eats and drinks judgment to himself, trampling underfoot, Jesus Christ and his blood. We don't point fingers again to identify hypocrites. They know who they are. And when they come to the table of the Lord, they do not receive any benefit. The table of the Lord for them is judgment. And that judgment is a hardening in their sin. Hypocrites and those who are not sincere are mentioned. Those who are not sincere are different. The Catechism makes a distinction between the two. A child of God can be insincere for a time. Perhaps there's some sin that's taken hold of that one. And as a result of that sin, that one is not living or walking sincerely before God. He or she doesn't want to let go of that sin. 
Think of David when he was guilty of the sin of adultery and murder. For a time, David was living as an insincere Christian. He was not confessing his sin. He was not walking in hatred toward that sin as he ought. It may be that the child of God loves the things of this world more than the things of God for a time. It's possible to approach God in our sins, to partake of the Lord's Supper, pretending to have put away that sin, pretending to love God, when really we're still clinging on those sins. That's insincere. We're not confessing our sins. We're not crying out to God for mercy. We don't want God really to search our hearts because we know what is going to be exposed. And so that one's faith then is weakened. It's not strengthened. But God in his mercy will turn that elect child away from sin. God will turn that one to repentance in his time. The Lord's Supper is not for those who are insincere. Now, the command then is not to say, I don't know if I'm sincere, therefore I ought not partake. The command is, examine your heart. Put off those sins and walk in sincerity before Jehovah God, your creator, your maker, your savior. And so an examination is required according to the scriptures. It's necessary before we come to the table of the Lord. That emphasis we find throughout the Bible. Here in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 to 34, emphasize that truth. In 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, we find similar instruction. Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobate? Now the question of self-examination is an important one. It's not a simple question. It's a challenging question. First of all, we avoid the extremes. We ask, what is the purpose of self-examination? Do we examine ourselves to find out whether or not we're Christians? Do we examine ourselves to see whether or not we have faith? Or do we strive to determine whether we're walking according to faith? There are some extremes here that we need to avoid. The first extreme would be that we make of it so objective so that it's unnecessary. In other words, it's just simply to demonstrate that I'm a Christian. And so some argue then, if I'm baptized, I'm a member of a church, I can partake. Because the only thing that's required is that I give evidence of the fact I'm not living like the world, but I'm a Christian. I recite the Apostles' Creed. I give evidence of a date of conversion, perhaps. That would be all that's involved in an examination. Another extreme would be to examine more than what is required. In other words, that we're required to determine now whether or not we should come to the table of the Lord. Again, that's not the question. We're commanded to come. Coming to the table of the Lord is required. We examine this, whether we will eat or drink, worthily or unworthily. Paul in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight doesn't say, let a man examine himself to determine whether or not he will eat or drink of the Lord's table. Paul writes, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. And again, that same emphasis is in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Paul doesn't write, examine yourselves to see if you have faith. That's not what he says. He says, and that would be impossible. 
as a matter of fact. Proper examination is possible only by faith. It's only because I have faith that I can examine myself. Rather, Paul writes, examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. And that gives us direction as to the matter then that is our examination. The danger, again, would be this. One attempts to gain assurance of his salvation by looking for certain marks within himself. And he tries then to find assurance for his salvation, apart from Christ, in himself. That will lead to disappointment. That will lead to despair. That's not going to lead to confidence in one's faith. The contrite heart of the faithful would be dejected, led to despair, because there's only that small beginning of new obedience within the holiest of God's children. If we try to base the assurance of our salvation on evidences that I find in myself, I'm going to discover a thousand reasons why I ought not be a Christian. The basis of my salvation is on Christ alone and the wonder of his faithful sacrifice on Calvary. And so proper self-examination begins then with the believer, and that must be emphasized. It's the believer who examines himself. An ungodly man, one who's insincere, is not going to examine himself or herself. There's nothing, first of all, that can be examined. Everything that is within is darkness. It's ungodliness. He's prone to evil, incapable of doing any good. And if he's not regenerated, there's nothing there that can be examined. There's no desire to turn away from sin. That one knows corruption and knows that to examine oneself is only to find God's judgment and the testimony of one's conscience that God's judgment is upon the ungodly. The one who's being examined must be willing to take the prayer of the psalmist as we sang it on his lips. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. The ungodly, the hypocrite, will never do that. The only difference between the ungodly and the hypocrite is that the hypocrite appears for a time to be a Christian. But he doesn't need to examine himself to figure out whether or not he's a hypocrite. He knows better. He knows in his heart who and what he is. But the child of God, implanted into Christ by a true and living faith, is the subject of self-examination and the object. That self-examination is an act of faith. It's a matter where the believer willingly sets himself before the testimony of God and the wonder of God's word. And that self-examination is possible only by the Holy Spirit, which searches the deep things of God. We don't expect perfection. We're not going to find perfection. But we don't expect either a continuing unrepentantly in sin. The principle of regeneration never increases. It remains but a small beginning of new obedience. The Christian at the same time has a sinful nature that's going to continue within him until he dies. And so the child of God who's regenerated, who has a sinful nature, experiences that spiritual battle that the apostle talks about in Romans 7. The good that I would, I don't do. 
The evil that I know I shouldn't do, I do. He always sins, but he hates that sin. And he tries to flee from that sin. He sins, but he confesses that sin in shame and humility. He sees that law that's in his nature, a law that wars against the members. And he hates that war, that struggle. The believer that is sorry for his sins and fights against sin is one who does so till the moment of his death. Never is that battle over. He's sincere. There's a sincere desire of heart to love God and to love the neighbor. And that desire grows as God works in him, that love for him, that desire to live unto him. And so the question is, am I sincere? Do I love God? Do I desire to live unto him? Do I hate my sin? Am I seeking to flee from my sin? Now, never am I going to be sorry enough. Never am I going to be doing battle as I ultimately ought. But I see in me that evidence that I love God. I delight in his kingdom and I desire to pursue his will. And so what I'm examining is whether I am in the faith. That is, am I living as one who is faithful, one who is a child of God? Am I fighting against sin? Am I doing battle against the powers of darkness? And so my examination then centers around the three points of the Heidelberg Catechism as the form for that purpose directs us. Do I know my sin and my unworthiness? Do I confess the depths of my depravity? I'm not just a sinner, I'm sinful. And I'm able to put that into concrete terms, not just general, but I know the sins that I'm guilty of, the sins I committed yesterday, the sins that I committed this morning, the sins that I committed this afternoon. I put my trust in something other than Christ. I neglect at times the means that God has ordained so that I confess my unfaithfulness. I confess my unworthiness. And I abhor myself because of those sins. I repent in true sorrow to God. Again, the question isn't, is my sorrow for sin deep enough? Is my sorrow sufficient? My sorrow for sin never can be the basis of my salvation or my payment. It never will be. But the question is, is that sorrow true? Is it genuine? Is it the work of God's grace in my heart by which I know my sin as sin against God? and the neighbor. And I confess it. To confess is to say with. Therefore, it's to express the same judgment on my sin as God renders on my sin. But then secondly, I trust that my sin is forgiven me for the sake of Jesus Christ. That my righteousness rests on nothing less than his perfect righteousness and his perfect sacrifice. As we enter into the symbolic fellowship of the Holy of Holies. We do so through the blood of Jesus Christ. How is it that I can enter into the presence of God? How is it that I can know my union with Him? It's only through the wonder of His perfect work and His sacrifice. And we examine ourselves. Is there that desire, that heartfelt desire 
to walk in true love and peace with God and my neighbor. True sorrow is rooted in, I love God. I know what great things God has done for me. I stand in awe of his goodness, his mercy, his loving kindness, his compassions, and my desire is to live unto him. That true love for God will show itself in thankfulness in our walk and in our conduct. The Catechism then talks about the fact that supervision is required. So that question and answer 82 now directs ourselves to the responsibility of the church with respect to the sacrament. And the next Lord's Days are going to expand on that as it addresses the keys of the kingdom of heaven. On the one hand, there is my personal examination and my stand before God and searching my heart, desiring that God do so in order to walk humbly and faithfully before Him. But also, it is the duty of the Christian church, according to the appointment of Christ and His apostles, to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, obviously, the church can't judge the things that are hidden. Those who know themselves hypocrites, those who know themselves insincere will be judged by God for their sinful partaking of the sacrament. The church is called to judge the matters that are able to be discerned. And that's what question and answer 82 is addressing. Where there are those who are within the congregation by their confession and life declaring themselves unbelieving and ungodly, they may not be allowed to partake of the sacrament. Most churches in our day practice open communion. They don't exercise any Christian discipline. The keys of the kingdom have long become rusty. Individuals are allowed on their own to determine whether or not they will come to the table or not. And tragically then, individuals who are living in the grossest of sins come and they partake as the sacrament is not guarded. Reformed churches from the very beginning recognize that they have a calling with regard to the sacrament. And the calling is expressed in the concept of close or supervised communion. Open communion allows everyone. Closed communion would allow only members who are confessing of this specific congregation. Close or supervised places the elders in a responsibility to judge. More are allowed than just simply confessing members of one congregation. Who then are to be admitted? The consistory is called to make that judgment. Now the implication here again is that not all who desire are going to be permitted or allowed to partake. The catechism speaks of confession and walk. And those two go hand in hand. A true confession is going to show itself in a sanctified life and a godly walk. A walk of ungodliness is going to reveal then a false confession so that doctrine and life go hand in hand, inseparably. The church must jealously guard purity in doctrine, but also purity in life. False teachers are going to enter into the churches. We're warned of this. They're going to spread their lies. And the church may not allow those false teachers to remain in the church, may not allow those false teachers to partake of the Lord's table. 
The Bible makes clear what must be our response toward those who are teaching doctrines and truths contrary to the word of God. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is a partaker of his evil deeds. 2 John 10, verse 10 and 11. They're speaking especially of those who would deny that Jesus is the Christ. Ephesians 4.14, that we henceforth no more be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. False doctrine leads away from Christ, and false doctrine leads into sin and ungodliness. Those who by their walk declare themselves to be ungodly have no place at the table of the Lord. And that's stressed again and again in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 10, 21, ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. The calling of the church is to bar from the Lord's table all that in confession and walk, profess themselves to be ungodly. Now, the saints in Corinth were failing in that regard. And that's the occasion then of the apostle by the inspiration of the Spirit writing these words to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 5 records the tragic reality that they were welcoming a man to the table who had taken his father's wife. The church stands responsible for that corporately for the confession and lives of the members, especially with respect to the Lord's Supper, where the church's unity is being confessed by those who partake. And then these sins were being allowed. Now, if we think of how Jesus instituted the Supper, it gives us direction. Jesus was careful. He instituted the Supper with his disciples, his close bond of those whom he had drawn to himself. He first instituted the Passover, and after he had the last Passover feast, remember what he said to Judas, that thou doest, do quickly. He sent Judas away. And now Jesus gathered then with the remaining 11, and he instituted then the Lord's Supper. He knew these men to be his children. After Judas is dismissed, he welcomes those who are united in faith, to eat and to drink with him in precious communion. The preaching, we understand, as a call that's directed to all who attend. It's not grace, we know, to everybody who attends the worship service, but the preaching is a call to the converted and to the unconverted. The sacraments differ in that regard. The sacraments do not do that. The sacraments have a different emphasis. It's for believers in order that the believers enjoy communion one with another. And so while the preaching calls to all, and we welcome under the preaching many, when it comes to the sacraments, there's going to be supervision. Those who are perhaps members of the congregation but are not living in godliness are not to be allowed. Those who are walking in godliness as Members in good standing are welcome. When there's a visitor, distinctions are made within the federation of our churches. 
We embrace fellow members of our federation as members who are admitted to the table of the Lord. The consistory examines them, asks them some questions. Are they members in good standing within the congregation? And we know what our churches teach. We know what they preach. We know that discipline is being conducted. And therefore, even though we don't know them, we welcome them as fellow members of the denomination of which we're a part. If someone comes from a different church, a different denomination, we don't immediately say no, but we want to talk. And we desire to sit down with them. We desire to visit as a consistory with them. We want to know what is it that they believe? How is it that they are living? And we have questions that need to be asked before the consistory then is willing to make a decision in order to welcome them to the table. This is how we show our love one for another. We partake together as those who confess our doctrine and walk in communion and agreement one with another. Now, how is this oversight to be expressed? The Reformed faith views the church organically. The unity of believers, therefore, is emphasized in coming together to fellowship at the Lord's table. The entire congregation has a responsibility and a calling in that regard. The entire congregation must see to it the table is not profane. And that emphasizes the fact that Christian discipline begins in the pew. It begins with us. If we're aware of someone that's walking in sin, someone that is living contrary to their confession, someone that is, who is a hypocrite, they're still coming to church, they're acting as though everything's all right, but everything is not well with regard to their life. Then we have an obligation and love for the brother, love for the sister, requires of us that we do our utmost to ensure that we can be right with that brother, with that sister at the table of the Lord. And so we go to the brother, we go to the sister, we heed Matthew 18, which lays out clearly and carefully the way of love for reconciliation. We seek repentance. Perhaps it's a misunderstanding. The matter is cleared up. Where there is a situation of sin, we then bring another in order to assist us. Where that one continues unrepentantly in sin, finally the matter then is turned over to the church in order that the elders might deal with the matter and might bring the necessary admonitions. This is love for the brother. This is love for the sister. This is a desire that we together show our union and communion one with another. That that unity is a unity in doctrine and life. Under the oversight, ultimately, of elders ordained and instituted by Christ within the church. And so it's the elders, particularly then, who have received from the Lord the responsibility to ensure that none come lightly to the table of the Lord. And so they watch. They see to it that preparatory sermons are preached. It's a duty that's spelled out in the church order. It's spelled out in question and answer 82 here on the basis of 1 Corinthians 11. The elders as watchmen on the walls of Zion are called to guard the table. Ask questions about doctrine and life to those who confess their faith in order that they might give a good confession and be admitted to the table. This unity is a unity in the truth. The elders must be certain that those who are coming to the table of the Lord are one in faith. And so to ensure that the membership of the congregation is faithful to the word of God. Now that doesn't mean that 
those who do not come to the table with us or whom we would not admit are somehow cursed. It doesn't mean that we're making a judgment that they're not Christians. Maybe deemed that an individual needs to receive more instruction in one area or another. Perhaps us to understand more clearly or more fully certain truths. In our own congregations, we're required to preserve the truth and to see to it that our membership as well is guarded. And so we don't issue a general invitation to all without examining the spiritual state and condition of such individuals. And that unity then is a true union. It's a communion with Christ. Together we join communing with Christ and confessing the unity that we share one with another. Beloved, the way to the table is always open to those who show themselves to be men and women of faith, sorry for their sins, confessing Christ as their Lord and Savior, desiring as sinners to live in thankful praise to the God of their salvation. That truly is communion. And that truly is the confession of the child of God, saved by grace, confessing Christ and his sacrifice as that alone necessary for my salvation. And God assures us, you are forgiven. You are members of Christ. He works his grace in our hearts by which we know and believe that that sacrifice once offered on Calvary was for me. And he works in me the assurance of the forgiveness of my sin and the joy of that life everlasting, giving me to know the wonder and the fruit of that gratitude and that thankfulness that he works in my heart. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for the wonder of thy grace, a grace that motivates us to love thee, to seek after the things of thy kingdom, a grace that gives us to know the wonders of salvation in Jesus Christ and that works in us a gratitude by which we might live unto thee and show forth thy praise. We thank thee for the union and the communion that is ours in Christ. And may we ever look to him and know and believe the wonder of his perfect work for us. This we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.